Open your Bibles up to James. Started studying James out of a dare, you might say, some time ago when a uh, fellow uh, minister, he's a youth pastor now, was an intern years ago, approaches me about studying James pushing it on us. He says, someone in your group needs to study James because it's a doing book and you guys are being people. And uh, assuming that I would take the bait, which I did, because we reject the idea that Christianity is a doing, kind of a doing thing. Uh, What we mean by that is that you could um, essentially follow a Christian around and do everything that the Christian does and yet still not be a Christian. Because a Christian is not a sum total of actions that you implement into your life or even morals or even belief systems or even ethics. What Christianity is, is God moving within the confines of your body and reproducing himself through you. That's that's the believer. You're transformed. Okay, And so um, I didn't believe or embrace uh, that. And you may need to take me down just a little bit. But I I didn't believe or embrace the idea that that James is about doing. So um, we, begin to, we begin to study it. We're going to look at a couple different things this morning. And I want you to, uh, and Stacy's going to help me kind of flip back and forth. We're going to try something a little new. Uh, and so it's not going to be on this side. Apologize. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to give you just a quick outline. A couple of you uh, had actually approached me, uh, one this morning and a couple last night, that you guys had started studying James. And there was a pastor that was here last night that had been preaching through James, or was going to preach through James. And so... Um, Hey, this is where we've been and what we've been studying. I want to give you a basic outline of the first chapter. Um, and it begins with the first verse, which we're calling, it was there. It's Sean's fault, isn't it? Yeah, Sean's fault. The first verse, which is basically, uh, makes up the first main section, which we're calling the people of God. And kind of basically touched on this last evening is that when you get into the book of James 20 times in this book, and you should do this really easy to do uh, in, a, in a principle of saturation, is to go through the first, uh, and of course it's only five chapters, go through these five chapters and just look for um, kind of family language. That's what I did. I mean, every single time James refers to someone within the body or refers to God, it's always with family connotations. It's not formal. You know, he talks to God as father. He talks to, you know, refers to us as brothers and even refers to sisters. Okay. So it's, it's family relationships. And yet when you come into the opening first verse of the book, when he identifies himself, um, he doesn't describe himself as a, with family connotations like he does in the rest of the book. He uses this term servant, which is also significant in that it doesn't appear throughout the rest of the book. Okay. So you have some kind of really interesting language that's being used, and at the outset of his book, how he introduces himself. And by the way, introductions are huge. An author, they don't write, okay, let me say this, they don't write the way we write in our emails, okay? There's actually intention, there's purpose, it's anointed, okay? There's, I mean, it's weight, he's writing, think about this, he's writing to the global church of his day. Yeah, this is huge, this is a big deal. Okay, it's not just, well, okay, hey, it's James, what's going on? You know, hey, no, there's significance and intent and there's purpose. There's, there's the movement of God that's expressing, God's expressing himself through this writer into what will become scripture. So this is a really big deal. So when he introduces himself and he chooses the term servant, it's with, it's with purpose. And what he's saying is, is how you identify the people of God is that they have the nature of a servant. Okay? How do we know this? Because God is a servant, and if he's living inside of you, you're going to be a servant. You can't be self-centered and be a Christian. You have to go against your nature to do that. You have to go against the nature of the one that's living inside of you. So we've given this as the first main section of the book, describing the people of God and that they're a servant, and we have a study on this. By the way, um, you can go to uh, a couple different places probably, but you can go to iTunes or my website, jeremiahbullock.com, and we take all of these studies and we put them up there, and so they're available for you if you want to go back and have that kind of time, listen to them. Fair enough? Now, the next, next main section <clears throat> is verses 
um, 2 through 18. And this is the purpose of trials. So you can scroll to the next page. The purpose of trials. I'll give you some time if you want to write that down. And I would email that to you, but I don't know how to do that kind of thing. You'd had to be here this morning to get the full weight of that joke. Okay, and so we have the purpose of trials. Walked through some of this last night, but um, the, the beginning of it, beginning at verse 2, uh, extending through verse 4, is the idea of this perfect work. Okay, uh, the opening statement of his book. Um, he, he talks about God desires us to not just do the right thing, but to the, be the right kind of people. He does not call an apple tree to produce peaches. He literally creates us into a peach tree so that we as peach trees will produce peaches. Okay? It's the idea. So he's not asking you to produce holiness. He wants to fill you with himself and demonstrate himself through you. So you have verses 2 through 4, which is the perfect work. Verses 5 through 8, which we're going to look at in, uh, in, in really specifically this morning in part, is the perfect perspective. And we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, verses 9 through 11, 11 is the perfect position, which again is the whole contrast between a person who's gifted and talented, has all of these abilities, intelligence, wit, all the kinds of things that we see and like in others, you know, uh, that make people kind of stand out, superstars, whatever. Okay? That's the rich person, the person who's rich in resource. Then you have the humble person. And the word humble is actually, you can translate it, timid. And it's, what's crazy is this is how Paul refers to himself. And I forget the actual passage. I don't have those notes with me. But Paul refers to himself, if I'm correct, it's in Romans. It's not in Romans. The Corinthian letters? Can't remember. But he, he refers to himself as being timid. And, you, and again, when I think of Paul, at least from what he writes, you think of this powerful, kind of just six foot five, you know, 230 pound, just, just monstrous, kind of powerful, strong person. But when he introduces himself, he says, or talking to this church, he says, I, Paul, who am, um, what is he? He says, who am bold when I'm away, but timid when I'm with you. Okay, I'm, I'm one of low resource. Okay, so Paul probably wasn't this huge, you know, kind of equipped, uh, talented. That's not the idea. I mean, what makes Paul who he is is the Spirit. Okay? So the perfect position is to be the one who is resourced by God, not relying on your own abilities and talents. In fact, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you'll hear us talk about that some of your greatest talents and abilities will become your greatest liabilities because you will be tempted to lean on them versus lean on Jesus, and there is no amount of talent that can produce what only Jesus can produce. We believe that. Verses 9 through 11. Verse 12 is the persecuted person, which is this tied up into the word blessing. James presents this, that you are blessed because you're used by God, but being used by God is going to be literally his plan versus your plan. Okay? His direction versus your direction. Okay? There's a consequence to saying, hey, I, I want your dreams and your plan for my life. Because that oftentimes comes in conflict with, with your plan and your dreams. Okay? And so he describes the persecuted person. And in verses 13 through 15, he talks about the pitfall of temptation, okay? what temptation is. And one of the things, and we're not going to go through this this morning, but, and, but you should listen to this online, because one of the really significant things that he mentions about temptation, or rather he doesn't mention, is anything about the enemy. All the temptation is, is, is what's common to our own uh, human nature. Okay, this body that we live in, the, uh, the desires that it presents, not being mastered by my drives. Okay? That there is, there's, there's aspects of me that will never be redeemed in terms of like my, my eating habits. My, after, as a Christian, my body just doesn't start longing you know, for like Brussels sprouts. You know? And say, don't, you want a donut? Oh, that's terrible, donut. <laughs> okay? No. My body's like, donuts, yes. Okay? Because uh, it's not redeemed. So these temptations, and he explores that whole idea. But one, one thing that's really significant is that when he talks about temptation, he doesn't even bring up the enemy, the tempter. And, 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 and the conclusion we're coming to, and you need to listen to this study, but the conclusion we're coming to is in the life of the believer, the enemy is irrelevant. I mean, there's this picture, and you, you, you really should wrestle with this. The picture that we have from Scripture, and it is so easy to see, not difficult to, to miss, uh, I mean, the picture of, of Christians that we get from Scripture is that they are these overcoming, conquering, courageous ones. 
Seriously. I mean, they're just sawed in two, fed to lions, burned at the stake. These phenomenal individuals that, I mean, Nathan brought this about last night, talked about this in reference last night, that Paul, after a year and a half of a brand new Christian, he calls back and he's like, you guys, what are you guys like, what are you doing? I'm shocked that you aren't grown up yet. Now in our society, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be, something has changed. Kind of, like the, the, kind of like the tenor of Christianity in our day and age are these weak, pathetic, sissified, kind of beaten, battered, bloodied people that are barely able to even function as believers. There's been this massive shift that takes place. That's not how, there's something wrong there. Okay? There's something wrong with that. Because that's not the picture that we get from the word. And so he talks about that and expresses that. And we walk through some of that in verses 3 through 15, which is the pitfall of temptation. Last night, which is the culminating climactic statement of, his, of this section, the purpose of trials, verses 16 through 18, is the uh, perfect plan. God has this plan. He's been, he's been planning this project that he put together before the foundation of the world and has included you. Okay? There's a whole new standard of life that he has for you, and he wants to begin something through you and only you, okay? You can only fulfill this. He wants to begin something in you, uh, in your context of life that fits together with his overall redemptive plan in your neighborhoods, in your family, at your work. And it, it's, it's tremendous, which is why he wants you to be the perfect work. Now, uh, this morning, we're going to look at verses 19 through 21 eventually. But I want to give you uh, this section, which is verse 19 down through verse 27, and it's the pure word. And so we're going to talk a little bit about saturation this morning. I'm not really sure. We haven't really divided up the teaching sessions yet for next, um, for this summer. We normally do that uh, two or three days before. So, um, uh, but uh, this is tailor-made for saturation, okay? And we talk a lot about saturation, which we're going to get to that in a second, but he, he, he talks about, and this is so significant, and this is, I'm still developing and kind of, not developing, I'm still kind of working my way through what he's talking about here, but it's so, it's so significant. <laughs> it's so significant that after he talks about our identity and who we are in Christ, there's this immediate connection in the introduction, in introductory chapter with the role of the scriptures in that person's life. I mean, we've been screaming that forever, and James takes that route. That after he talks about our identity, he begins to immediately talk about the scriptures. He immediately talk about the implanted word. And there's some, there's some things we need to walk through in terms of Jesus is the living word and the scriptures, the written word. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But he goes through, and this is our outline of verses 19 through 27, and it probably will not change. Verses 19 through 21, we're calling that the planted word. The section is the pure word section. It's the planted word. Okay, We're going to talk about... Literally, how he, he, he presents the word being planted inside of you, which can save you, is his language. We're going to look at that this morning. Verses 20 through, 20 through 24 is the perverted person. And that's not a sexual connotation as much as it is the person that God has created that has been, it's a perversion of the truth. Okay? It's a perversion of the truth. It's a perversion of that person. And to give you an illustration of this, which is, makes perfect sense to me, but if you've ever watched Lord of the Rings and have done any in-depth studies on the background of that, which I'm sure you all have, <laughs> you will know that orcs are a perversion of elves. Obviously, okay, we all know that, okay? That Sauron took the elves and perverted them and we have orcs, Okay. Just like this stone trolls are a perversion of ints. Yeah. See? Don't need to say anything else about that. So, the perverted person is a, is a perversion of who we are called to be, which is there's a lack of the word. And the language he uses, and I'm walking, this is what I'm currently studying, is, is the man who looks intently at himself in the mirror. And it's not just looks at himself on the outside. He sees who he's been called to be, verses 16 through 8 stuff, walks away and forgets that says not interested that is that that man will be perverted in everything that he does oh, it's going to be great when we get to it 
Okay, and then he moves into verse 25, but, and we and sing, verses 23 through 25 is probably one study, but we're going to focus on verses 23 through 24, and then we're going to move and look at verse 25. 25 is the person who sees who he is, turns away, and does not forget, but embraces that. And I do, and if you, if you were to press me, and I feel like you're pressing me, I think where the church is at today is there is this perverted person versus perfect person that they're wrestling with. People walk out of church on Sunday and forget who they are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Seriously. They go to their job and live perverted lives. Amen. And you're going to say, hold on, but I don't do this. I don't do that. How do you define good and bad? And their life is a perversion of what God has called it to be, which is tremendous. This is going to be great stuff. We'll look at this at training camp more than likely if we're not in Revelation 4. Verses 26 through 27 is the last part of the word section, which is the pure person, which is the person who embracing, embracing who he is, seeing himself in the word is, a, is, is changed, okay? There's nothing bad about him. His life is the unadulterated outspill of God himself. So that's the section. Now, I want to focus with you, and if you want to go all the way back to the beginning of the saturation, and we're going to, we're going to walk through this. I want to present to you an idea where in talking about the word, there's something that I really wanted to brief you on. And we've got some time this morning, okay? <laughs> I've got some time this morning, okay? We're not going to keep you forever. But before we really begin to look at the opening section of verses 19 through 21, I want to familiarize you a little bit with saturation, okay? Because really, that's what we're dealing with in verses 19 through 27 in terms of this, the word, okay? We're talking about saturation saturating into the scriptures, I want to talk to you a little bit about what, what the word is, okay? And that we've been finding, and I've been teaching on this at the revivals we're at, I've been teaching about there's two perspectives of scripture that you're going to find. And there's right and left on this, there's extremes either way, and there's going to be people that's found somewhere in the middle, okay? Um, not everybody's all the way to the right. Not everybody's all the way to the left on certain issues. Not everybody's conservative or liberal. One of the, one of the, issue, one of the examples I give of this is translations. Okay? You have dynamic equivalence versus formal or form criticism. Okay? You have these two extremes. One is literal trans, translating the Greek into English, which is not possible word for word. And then you have dynamic equivalence to the extreme, the other end, which would be let me just do all the studies and I'll just tell you what it says. And you rely on this end, you rely on someone else's interpretation. This is just word for word. But if you know, if anybody here knows more than one language, you'll know that if I'm an English person trying to translate something into English or to Spanish, I just don't take the English word and go look for the Spanish word and plug it in. The next English word, go look for the Spanish word, plug it in. The next word, you, you, that's not how it works. There's some interpretive leaps that have to be made. Okay? So there's this, in terms of translations, Middle of the road is probably NIV, New King James. They're just a healthy balance of, of literal translation with interpretive helps. Okay? Middle of the road. Now, does that make sense? So it's not just one extreme or the other. In terms of, you know, a variety of, of topics, we find ourselves in between. That's the same thing with when the way that people look at Scripture in terms of what it is. You're not going to have everybody just naturally falling into two groups. There's going to be, you know, people in between. But primarily, the people that are in between are in between these two groups, okay? What I've found typically, okay? Don't want to be pinned down on this and dissected, but primarily. On one side of the equation, on one side of the, of the discussion, you have people that it seems... And I think most people, you may not, they may not say that I believe this, but when it flushes out in their daily living and how they live and read their Bible, most people I find talk about the scripture like that. That scripture is, it's law. Okay? It's rules. You get information. Uh, I've heard people say, oh, it gives me direction for my life. Okay? It's the rule. It's the law. Okay? I want to know what's right. I want to know what's wrong. I come back to the scriptures. Okay? Can I kill people? Okay. No, I cannot. Okay? It's in the law. Do not murder. Um, it gives me rules. And, and some of this stuff is right. Okay? Um, but in terms of when we come to the scripture as Christians, okay, and how we engage this, you understand, strictly speaking, as Christians, you and I 
are not under the law. Okay? We are not accountable to the law, you might say. Paul flushes this out in Romans chapter 7. And we can't, I can't spend all day on this, but I'm going to give you just a teaser of it. In Romans 7, Paul says, you do not belong to the law, you belong to Christ. Okay? Now the law will not pass away, Jesus says, and we recognize that, we understand that. But the law was given to reveal sin. It was not given to produce righteousness. Flat. If you can be righteous by observing the law, you don't need Jesus. Seriously. Okay? If you can be righteous, if you can hang the Ten Commandments on your, on your wall, and you can be righteous by observing that, why are you here? Go golf. I would. Why are you here? So we don't come to the, the Scriptures to learn what to do and then observe it. That's law stuff. Okay? Your eyes start to flutter and you're going, okay? Think that through, okay? Now, rules aren't bad, and we have rules. Jesus had rules. One of the knee-jerk reactions of the younger crowd is this abandonment of rules. You see it in the way they lead worship, and which is not necessarily bad, but they'll say stuff like, you know, do whatever you want. However you want to worship, you want to sit down, sit down. You stand up, stand up. Roll around, roll around. Run around, run around. Whatever you want to do. We're free here, okay? No structure, no rules kind of stuff. Well, I understand that, but rules aren't bad. Uh, I have a rule. I'm a sucker for wild wings, okay? Just, I, I've embraced that and confessed that. I'm a sucker for wild wings. But I don't go to Hooters Restaurant. And I know what you say, but it's only for the wings. It's the only reason I go, they got good wings. I understand that. But I'm not going to go there. Because I don't embrace, and the Jesus that I walk with and live with does not look at women the way that establishment portrays women. And I'm not going to go there. So I have a rule in my life. Okay? Now, the difference between that idea of rules and coming to the Scripture as rules is though that rule does not make me righteous. It is a result of the, the Lord that lives within me. There are certain things that, that come up into my life as rules, not that make me righteous, but are due to his righteousness that I embrace. Okay? So it's not law. It's not rules. It's not information, which is hysterical. This is my favorite, and i got to be careful. Don't offend anybody. You know, you can't come to the Scriptures and say, well, hey, how should we dress? Okay? Let's come to the Scripture. You should dress like a 2,000-year-old Jewish woman. Praise the Lord. Okay? Which is ridiculous. Okay? I mean, that you don't you can't come here. Well, you shouldn't have tattoos. Are you listening to yourself? Do you apply that to everything? See, we pick and choose. Paul says that's fine. You want to live that way, okay? You want to live at one point of the law, you're gonna be judged by the whole thing. So if you want to talk about tattoos, and I agree with you, tattoos, hey, I wouldn't be caught dead with one. But but Personally, okay, personally, if you're going to rip on tattoos, then we should also be talking about pork. Seriously, it's in the same, it's in the same uh, um, uh, paragraph. So you cannot pick and choose. And the issue you're having with your own teenager and your inability to stand up and, and, and dictate for your own house and walk that through, that's your own issue. Don't corner me in that argument. Okay, on whether tattoos are bad or right or wrong because you're asking all the wrong questions in terms of Scripture because it's not giving you information. Okay? This is not information. This is not his history. It has history in it, but it's not written as a history. Okay? And then also the direction idea. When we, that's one spectrum, which typically we have people that by default seem to approach the Scriptures that way. What I believe, and again, and I wrestled with this as a young believer, I mean, really, of all things, because, and this was so evident to me as a young believer, um, what does it mean to be a Christian? I learned very quickly that when you go to church, everybody has a different opinion on terms of, you know, uh, you bring up dress and clothing in any kind of a church environment where people are free to speak about it. You're going to have some people believe this, and some people believe that, and some people say this, and some people say that. Everybody's got their own opinion. And as a young believer, I thought, well, hold on. What is the opinion? 
See, what is his opinion? What's his perspective? How does he feel about this? And it was scripture. And that was huge for me. And as I began to study and went to college, I learned that we call actually the scripture the canon, which is Latin, for rule or standard. This is the rule of, or standard for what we, you and I believe, okay? How we judge his voice. It's not that God can't speak to me out driving down the road somewhere, which he does from time to time, but he's not going to reveal to me anything more or less than here. And we know that God reveals himself exclusively in Jesus, nothing outside of Jesus, which means this proclaims Jesus, okay? So this is, this is a huge, a huge, a huge deal. This is the rule, this is the standard, which means in my own personal life, if you want to talk to me about anything that comes outside of the confines of Scripture, we're going to have a problem with that. Because it's not that God doesn't still reveal himself, he just doesn't reveal himself outside of the bounds of Jesus, because Jesus is the perfect revelation of who he is. And this reveals Jesus. So the other side of this argument and how we approach saturation, if you want to bring that up, is that we believe the Scriptures are truth. Not rules, truth. In other words, this is how things are, which is what's been so significant about prophecy. Prophecy is not what God will make happen, it's what will happen. And I probably should qualify that. The wages of sin is death. It's not like if you sin, God's going to kill you. You will kill yourself. I get this. I get these. I get this tweet the other day. I get these all the time. I got this tweet. Does your God, is your, does your God love me? Well, that's a loaded question. Yes, he loves me or yes, he loves you. Okay. Well, then if he loves me, how could he send me to hell? I'm like, you have never really read John 3, 16 and 17, have you? The most famous passage of scripture probably ever. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Okay, let me read it. Let me just read it. Because I, I mix the King James and the NIV up a little bit. Been hanging around Nathan for too long. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, see I always say whosoever, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So you raise this question, okay, so if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to perish. Okay, in other words, God's going to send you to hell, right? No. Listen to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. but to save the world through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The idea is you and I are on a, tr on a truck to hell and Jesus is saying, jump off into me. So does your God love me? Yes. Then how can he send me to hell? He's not, bonehead. He's trying to wake you up, okay? So it's truth. This is truth. It's how things are. See, I believe what this says about me over against not only what you say about me, but what I think about me. I'm not going to be blown and tossed, as Nathan said last night, with my emotions. Because one day I get up, I feel this way. The next day I get up, I feel this way. Well, I choose to feel this way. Regardless of how I feel, it's how it is. It's who I am. I'm wonderfully and beautifully made. Okay? I don't know about you, but I, me. Okay? Okay? <laughs> okay? I, hey, I, I, he's made me. And he speaks to me. And, and there's accountability with my body and those kind of things. So it's truth. It's his word. It's like he's... Is, does God speak? Yes. What's he speaking? Okay? This is what he speaks. going to write his word on the fleshly tablets of your heart. He's communicating. Now, one of the words I've been playing with, and we need to step this right along, but one of the words I've been playing with, yeah, we need to step this right along, but one of the words I've been playing with is his perspective, okay? And I want you to turn with me quick, and you can go to the next screen on this, John chapter 16. 
And why we're bringing all this up is because when you come into um, James, we, he talks about, verses 5 through 8, the uh, perfect perspective. All of that is on wisdom. And we talk about wisdom, and you say, okay, what is wisdom? Well, the wisdom of God is the wisdom that belongs solely to him, okay? And what I find really neat about God's wisdom over against our wisdom is when we in our wisdom look at God's wisdom, it's foolishness, as Paul says. I mean, he says stuff like, get out of the boat and walk to me on water. And we're like, dude, you're insane. Yeah, we're going to lead you out of Egypt. How? Go to the sea. We'll be trapped. That's like dumb. Okay, so God has a plan. God has wisdom. He's got, and so what you, what, what you and I are called to do is to dump our and embrace his. Now, Jesus, oh, this is so good. In chapter 16, and we're going to go through this quickly, but I don't think you realize how absolutely, utterly devastated the disciples were. And we have a really hot, we have a difficult, and, a, and, a, and I do it myself, but we, we have a flaw in our day and time in the way we use language. Um, awesome. You ever looked up the definition of awesome? Okay, God can be described as awesome. Not the dinner that you just ate. Okay? You know? We're having pizza? Awesome! <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Seriously? Okay? We use that kind of terminology. Um, we use words like devastated. What does that mean? Devastated, by the way, is a way that you could translate 16... Uh, in my opinion, chapter 16, verse 5. Uh, Jesus is talking to the disciples. Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me. Where, listen to this. I'm going to the one who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you are, here it is, filled with grief. You are devastated. I've lost the capacity to function as a human being. I'm in such shock and grief. That's devastated. It's a couple that's been married for 70 years and the husband dies. And you watch this shell of a woman, or the woman dies, and the shell of a man, and they have trouble adjusting. They're devastated. They've been like this for a long period. And we've, I've seen that, and God can overcome, and blah, 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 and we understand. But devastation is, is not just, oh, I'm really just, oh, you know, we can't go swimming today. <laughs> that's, that's not devastation. It's I've lost the capacity to communicate, to speak, Okay. I've lost the capacity to function as a human being. And you'd say, that's what they are? Absolutely. And Jesus said, I'm leaving. Why would they be devastated? Because he's the Messiah. They've left everything. They've been identified with this guy. They've left houses and homes and businesses. And this comes up. Peter said, we left everything to follow you. And now Jesus says, hey, three years. It's been awesome. By the way, I'm out of here. And they're devastated. They've lost the capacity to speak. Now, listen to what Jesus says. This is huge. Jesus says in verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Which means I have to leave. I have to leave. Because unless I go away, and he refers to, and let me pause here, I probably should have said this at the outset. Verse 7 down through verse 16 is a dialogue over the role of the Holy Spirit. And in my translation, it's, it, it has a title above verse 7, Concerning the Holy Spirit. What does yours say? The work, of the, Holy the work of the Holy Spirit. Anybody have anything different? So we have the work of the Holy Spirit and concerning the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But in verse 7, he doesn't call this, this Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. He calls it the Counselor, which is the role, hear me, Counselor is the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. What is he going to do in you? He's going to counsel you. Does he going to empower us? Absolutely. But he's going to counsel you. The empowering is not Superman. You know, although we love the shirts, okay? It's a lot of the power, the role of the Holy Spirit is in insight, opening your eyes, okay? And he says he's going to counsel you. Jesus says, listen, you're devastated because I said I have to leave. But unless I leave, I, I mean, the counselor will not come to you. And now he talks about, beginning in verse 8, the role of the Holy Spirit, down through verse 11, in the world, which is, to con which is conviction. It's to come and speak to someone outside of Christ and convict them, to bring them to the knowledge of the truth, which is Jesus. So there's a role of the Holy Spirit in the world. 
Okay? So if anybody ever says to you, I'm a Christian, and you know, I, I'm living in this kind of habitual repentance, and I mean, the Holy Spirit's treating me as a convict, that person is a convict. Okay? And a convict does not describe a believer. I'm open for you to find that in scriptures. If you have a different opinion on that, come and tell me where Jesus says, listen, my beloved convicts. Okay? It's not here. Because that's the way the Holy Spirit believe, deals with the world, categorically the place that is opposed to Christ. So if you are living in, a, in an area of your life, if your life is defined by living in opposition to Christ, the Holy Spirit will convict you. Why? Because you're a convict in the spiritual sense. Okay, you say that's how he, he speaks to the world? I'm, yes, but that's what he says. And you, can, you can believe whatever you want. I don't care. Okay, I'm not your pastor. Thank God. But uh, this, is, this is what he has to say. Okay, this is, what, this is what he says. Jesus says about the role of the Holy Spirit to the world. It convicts. Verse 12, he picks it back up. This is the role of the Holy Spirit to the believer. This is beautiful. Listen to this. Verse 12, he says, I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. Bear means you do not have the capacity to understand what I want you to understand. You've reached your limit. And Jesus says, I mean, they've been with Jesus for three years. And Jesus says, we've just, it's the tip of the iceberg, man. I, I, I've got so much more to talk with you about. But I have to leave. Because unless I leave, the counselor won't come. And what's the counselor going to do? He is going to, verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, notice the scriptures, well, don't, don't pull it back up, but the scriptures talk about it as truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will speak, he will not speak on his own. This is an ex extremely significant phrase. If anybody ever says that the Spirit came and opened my eyes and is speaking through me and it says something different than Jesus, guess what? It's not the Spirit. Which is why Paul says, test the spirits. Because he says, he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory by taking from what is mine, Jesus, and making it known to you. So Jesus says, listen, I've got a ton more to talk to you about. Unless I go, the Spirit won't come. What's the Spirit going to do? He's going to guide you into everything that I want to talk to you about. In fact, He's going to take everything that I've been saying to you, and He's going to communicate it to you in a way you can understand. He's going to move from the outside of your body, which is where Jesus lived and walked and, and demonstrated and spoke, and He's going to move to the inner confines of your life, and He's going to open your eyes. He's going to reveal Himself to you. Now, there's a profound thing that He says in verse 16 which we'll conclude on this section. He says, in a little while, you will see me no more. Notice I put C and C up there. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Those are two different Greek words for see. Harao and tharao. Okay? And I left my notes at home, so I can't tell you which is which. But I'm pretty sure this is right. Okay? Harao is seeing. Okay? It's always amazing. As a minister, I think everybody should have to preach at least a few times so they can see how you look. You think you hide. This is a personal thing. You, uh, you think you can, I think most people think they hide out there. You can scratch and pick and dig and all that other stuff and talk and sleep and think that I don't see you. It's, I, and most of the time I spend my time up here grossed out, but that's just personally, okay? Because of what you are doing, okay? Because what you are doing. So I can see you, okay? You say, hey, was AJ here this morning? Yes. Well, how do you know? I can see him. Did he pay attention? <laughs> Mostly. Nita did, okay? <laughs> so how do you know? Dude, I'm staring right at him, okay? Harao, I can see, okay? I can see what you're wearing. I can see what you look like. It's a real word for all. Jesus says, in a little while, you will physically see me no more. That's not at his death. That's after his resurrection when he ascends into the clouds. They physically will not see him anymore. Then he says, in a little while after that, you will see me, which is a different word for see. It literally means perceive, understand, which is at Pentecost, which again, this whole passage is on the role of the Holy Spirit that is given to them 
at Pentecost, they're going to understand Jesus in a way they never understood him before, which is bizarre. And I found myself, you probably find yourself, I've watched Jesus of Nazareth. I watch it every year. And uh, I watch it normally around Christmas time when I'm home. And uh, I watched it and I find myself saying, I wish I could be back there. Oh, I wouldn't do the things those bonehead disciples did. I tell you that, man, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. And anyone who's been around me for any amount of time would agree with that, obviously. Okay? But it's a different subject. But um, I, I've said, I, you know, I wish I could be there. No, I, I, you and I would do the same thing. And what's crazy is, and this is nuts, the disciples knew Jesus better after he left and they received the Holy Spirit than they did with living with him for three years. Which is insane. To think that you and I can know Jesus better than they did before they received the Holy Spirit after living with him for three years. Isn't that nuts? Okay? Because he goes from outside to inside. That's what he's saying. Jesus is like, listen, I know you don't understand this. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And I have to leave, because unless I leave, the Spirit will not come. This is the language that, G that James is talking about concerning wisdom. Okay? You have to have his perspective. You have to have that. Okay? And it's interesting, he ties that with Scripture. That's what this is. It's his perspective. It's not law. And I found, and we got, I got in this argument on this, and I don't know if I want to say this because we're live, but <laughs> it's best to say it when other people can't hear you. But we were, we were talking about getting this issue of divorce, and it's a, it's a touchy you know, topic, Okay? Because there's so much of that, you know, divorce in, in the body. And I'm not casting stones in anybody. But a woman, you know, asked me in a, in a service one time, you know, well, is divorce wrong? Well, what do you mean by that? Okay? The disciples pin, tried to pin Jesus down on that. You know? Is divorce wrong? Can I divorce this woman? I mean, hey, Moses gave us a certificate of divorce. You can come and use this to trap Oh, and try to justify, and Jesus says, yeah, Moses did that because their hearts were hardened. I was closed off to his perspective. And he adds to that, but that's not what God desired. That's not how God feels. So if I were to look at you, and you're getting ready to be married, I will, and if, I, if you ever ask me to marry you, one, you're going to have to do it like on Christmas, okay, when I'm home. Okay, because I'm not taking time off for it. No offense. But I will tell you in front of your parents and everyone else, till death do you part is literal. Okay, no one's getting out of this alive. Okay, this is a death sentence. There is no prenup. Biblically, it is forever. Well, what if he does this? I am going to throw away my, on his perspective on marriage. This is not about me. It's about, in fact, the body, and I'm coming to the, I've come to this conclusion in my life, that my, even my bodily drives, the ones that I like the most, are not giving for me, they're given for her. And her bodily drives, and her body is not given for her, it's given to me. See, it's, there's no way out. And that's what, and you can believe whatever you want. I don't care. But if you want to know what Jesus says, this is what he says. So we have the disciples, and this is what makes the scriptures so huge. And let me say one more thing, and we're not going to get through most of this. Apologize. But Jesus says, and it's interesting that you understand, when you look at the words of Jesus in scripture, talking about the word and saturation, when you look at the scriptures, and you do some study, you'll realize that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. What's the New Testament written in? Greek. So the words of Jesus, the red letters, they're right, really not the words of Jesus. They're the words of Jesus. But it's not like James is going, slow down! You know? Or Matthew or John, come on, hold on, put the tape recorder. Oh, it's not invented yet. And then, you know, they're trying to write and correctly, you know, chink, chink, chink. I mean, whatever they're doing, you know, to keep up with what he's saying. Okay? You say, then what do we have in Scripture? The disciples, get this, are now filled with the spirit of the one who is speaking to them in the flesh. And they look back on what he said, and he is revealing the meaning of that 
to them. And they're communicating that with a language different than he even spoke, but it's a language that is full enough to, equip, to, to confess, to, uh, to uh, comprehend, to extrapolate. Okay, help me, Nathan. Okay. It's to uh, communicate. Greek language is phenomenal in order to communicate the depth of what Jesus was saying. So you have the disciples who, after Jesus has, has left, moved into the confines of their life, is now communi communicating the truth. And again, if you go back and look at the parables, they're constantly saying he speaks in riddles. And you understand half the time, even the disciples didn't understand what he was saying. We read through his death. He's talking about his death most of his life. And yet his disciples, after his death, we see this in Luke chapter 24. They're like, wow, we thought he was the one. And you're looking, you dope. He told you this. I mean, come on. And now filled with the Holy Spirit. So when you get into the scriptures, when you get into this inspired word, this crazy, flawed, if I can say it in some manners, document that was written by men, okay, but authored by God, you are getting into his word. This is what he talks about. This is how he speaks. This is his perspective. Okay? Now, James is drawing upon that. In James chapter 1, we're going to walk through this super quickly, like five minutes. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And I don't know if I have another slide on there that takes you out of this. No? No? Or just shut it off? But it might be up there. Or unplug it or mute it. I don't have the vocabulary. Verse 19, chapter 1. My dear brothers of James. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you you okay uh, he begins and he says take note of this which the word take note of this and i think this is a terrible translation tried to be appropriate in saying it and you know but it's it's just a terrible translation my beloved brothers is what he says when he says take note of this it's the greek word oida you're like hold on i know that word you translate it no yes okay which comes from the idea of seeing it's a knowledge through seeing. I look and I can see you and I know things about you. I know that you're tall or you're short or you're blonde or you're brunette or you're, you know, I know things. I watch how you, whatever. I know. I know because I see. Okay, it's a knowledge. And not just I see physically, but it's, it's also used in terms of someone's telling you about something and you go, oh, are you with me? Someone's talking to you about something and you say, oh, I see what you're saying. That's the word oida, Okay. That's this word here. So when, when James says, listen, take note of this, he, he's looking at his audience and saying, listen, you guys know this. This makes sense to you. You've seen this. I'm not telling you anything new. Okay? So he's, he, he, for the first 18 verses, verse 2 through verse 18, he says, this is who you are in Christ. I want to remind you of this. Global church of my day. Don't get distracted. This is who you are. Now, let me talk to you about the role of the implanted word in your life. He says, take note of this. Come on, you know this. You've seen this. I'm not telling you anything new. This is flushed out in your own life. And he gives some kind of what you would say, and the scholars do say this. It's almost practical advice, but I think it's more than that. He says three things. Okay? There's things to be quick about and things to be slow about. They are separated by the word ace, which is into, okay? We translate it to, quick to do these things, slow to do these things. But the word that we have to there is the word ace in the original language, which is literally a moving from one point into another, okay? So he says, listen, you know this, I want you to move into this, I want you to move into this mold of life, okay? I want you to, I want you to kind of get sucked into this perspective, Live in this aspect of, of behavior. I want this to be your construct, this to be your framework by which you process. You were living over here. This is how, you, and Paul talks about this, okay? Paul talks about this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And by the way, he uses very similar language. James says, take note of this, everyone should be. Everyone should be is like a standard, 
Okay, across the board in the church, children to adults, everyone should be. Okay, reminding the global church of who they are. Don't get distracted. You've seen this. You guys already know this. This is a standard for the church. Everyone should be, which means everyone should be wherever you are, you're at, move into everyone should be. Okay, as believers, get into this. Okay, and Paul says that reject the manner of this world, get into him. His good, perfect, and pleasing will. Okay? And what he's saying, getting into B, is the quickness of certain things and the slow, slowness of other things. He says you need to be quick to listen. It's the Greek word we translate to hear. In John chapter 8, Jesus looks to the leaders of Israel and says, Why can't you hear me? And my response is, Dude, just turn up the mic. They'll hear you. Well, no, they can hear him, but see, you can hear and not hear. So here literally gives you the idea of a realizing and embracing the truth. In other words, he says, I want you to be quick to hear the truth. I want you to be quick to discern the truth. Quick to do this. Not, in other words, get past, it's interesting, if you can get past all of the outward kind of stuff that we as human beings and the tempers and the and the up and down and the and all the distractions and listen to the heart of the matter this is imperative in raising kids and being married whether you're male or female it's learning to hear learning to listen okay quick to do that he says and he says slow to do two other things to speak and to be angry and the way, and you can look at those independently, but really it's one category of being slow. So you can kind of look at all these together, in my opinion. And so slow and speak is, which is <laughs> anger and speaking. That's my world. I never shut up and I'm always passionate. Okay. That's how I grew up. Okay. Yeah. You are too, Sean. Stop laughing. So th that's, that's my, that was my world. I come from a long line of screaming, yelling hotheads. That's how we disciplined our kids. You scream, you yell. Okay, is the scriptures say, and when we're talking about anger, by the way, anger is not bad. The Bible says don't sin in your anger. Okay, it's the seat of, it's this, it's the seat of your passion. Okay, it's, it's what rises up in you. He says, listen, be tentative with that stuff. Okay, and why does he say that when you move into the next, when you move into the next portion? He says, verse 8, uh, and I think this is important, verse 20 is one small, extremely small verse. If you look at the comparat uh, comparative words per verse in the first chapter, verse 20 is the least amount of words. And it's a short explanation. Why should you be quick to listen and slow to be just, you know, just and just speak and just passionate and just be slow to that? Verse 20, for man's passion does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And does not bring about is the Greek word, which we, it's ergozomai, which we translate work. It doesn't work. John chapter 1, verse 12. Hey, children of God are not born by natural descent, a father's will, human de husband's will, human decision, but they're born of God. Which means says, hey, I'm going to discipline my kids and I'm going to get on them. That, you're not going to change your kids that way. Because that doesn't work. It doesn't work in your own life. Which means screaming and yelling at the guy outside of your window is not helping. Seriously, yelling and fighting and screaming and passionate, it's not helping. Okay? And it's only taken me like 40 years to learn that. So it's not, you know, a huge thing to, to, <laughs> grasp, to grasp with. And you say, well, what's the alternative? Just shutting up? Isn't that interesting? You're like, how could that work? Because he tells you, it does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. Probably enough said there for the point. You come into verse 20, uh, 21 and it says, therefore, which is actually the word wherefore. And here's how it works. He says, listen, quick to listen, slow to speak and get angry. And why? For it does not work. Okay, It will not produce the righteous life that God requires. Let me tell you what will produce the righteous life that God requires. <laughs> this is neat. He says, therefore... Get rid of. It literally means lay it aside. And it's the moral filth and evil that's overflowing present wickedness is another way to translate it. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And that, the idea is that it's not specifics. 
It's what, it's what uh, Nathan quoted last night, reading what Paul wrote to Timothy about the product of the world. There'll be lovers of pleasure, lovers of this world. Because this whole list, that's the kind of sea in which you and I swim through every day. He says, lay that aside. You want to know what will change your life? You want what's going to bring about the righteous life that God desires? Okay? It's, keep it quiet. Don't live by, you know, this kind of reach it, grab it, rip it, get it. Just relax. Okay? And lay aside everything the world is wrapped up into. Remember what Paul says, okay? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I am not going to think the way that I used to think. How did you used to think? Okay? <laughs> How are you going to think now? Okay? I'm going to lay aside all that junk. I'm not going to think the way they think. I'm not going to see the way they see. I'm not going to get it done the way they get it done. Okay? I'm, not, I'm laying aside the sea of moral decay, the perversion of the world in which you and I live in. I'm laying that aside. And this is what he says. And humbly accept. And the word accept, I like a little better translation. I think it's fine. But there's another way to translate this word. It has to do with welcome. So you can accept someone in your home, and then you can welcome them into your home. Okay? And I won't talk about family there. But the idea... Is you, it's humbly welcome. Humbly welcome the word that is planted in you. Humbly welcome his perspective in the situation. Humbly welcome his, his, his direction. Um, it's, this, it's this idea that Jesus, I can't. I cannot produce, there's no amount of passion, there's no amount of focus, there's no amount of I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to humbly lay aside the things that this world is wrapped up into, and I'm going to get into your perspective, I'm going to get into your focus. I mean, it, it, it's amazing to me how what we study, just with this group, and if you're not familiar with Cross Style, go listen to a bunch, you're going to be like, they always talk about the same thing. There's one message, and it's really not even multifaceted. It's about getting sucked into him. Wrapped into him, humbly accept, welcome his perspective. The word he wants to plant in, it'll save you, man. It'll save your marriage. It'll save your kids. We've been going through this thing with um, CJ and Elena. And they beat up on each other. And I constantly have to pull them aside. And we don't, I, I, and we've tried it. I thought, okay, I beating them that'll work okay you you beat each other and i'll beat you that works obviously there's no like inconsistency there you know and it's the yelling and the grounding and the taking away and that just it doesn't work and we sit down and and you say well she does this and we try to i try to say listen would you be willing to see your brother the way jesus sees him and how he feels and, and, and we, over, over Christmas, and we'll be quick about this. You guys can come up for worship band, by the way. But um, over Christmas, we're going to play, sitting around with some of the family, we're going to play cards. Well, CJ's eight, so he's able, he can read, and he's able to play cards. And we're playing some cards. Well, it's a game that Elena couldn't play. She wasn't old enough. Well, she's devastated. Okay? Shouldn't use that word. Because I just told you, don't use words like that. Okay? She was upset. Okay? But with the drama, it seemed a little bit more, you know, crisp. And so she's really upset. She goes in the back room. She's crying. And CJ was like, well, she can't play. Let's play. And I pulled CJ aside. And I'm like, are you right? Yes. Can you play? And he, he, he's a factual kind of a kid. No, listen, I'm not mad at her. And I want her, but she can't play. It's a matter of, you know, mathematical certainty, Dad. You know, you can spell this out. She can't play. And I said, I understand. But should you take your liberties and play when she can't play, when you have every right to play? And he's like, I don't understand. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I'm not bad. And I said, I understand. But, and I reversed it on him. And because we were just at my sister's house and the older boys that he was playing with wanted to play a game that he couldn't play. How did that make you feel? And it's about getting out of your perspective. And what does this mean for her? And is there a, ever a point where I lay down my rights? And they are my rights for the sake of another person. And and that's just one example, but we're trying to incorporate, that's, that's what raising our kids is to us. It's them being raised up, seeing the way he sees and feeling the way he feels and, 
And I'll be honest with you, um, we had this, uh, this came about a couple years ago, and I'll talk to him, because uh, it's Dr. Manley, and he's not here. His head swells real easy, so I, I wouldn't say this if he was here. But um, <laughs> we were coming out to the car, and I was upset with Elena about something, and I was going to spank her. And so we're going out to the car, and Stephen's walking with me, and she's like really quiet, and she's like, you know, because my spankings aren't fun. And um, so we're getting in the car, and she's like, are you going to spank me? I was like, I have to. And I said, don't I, Stephen? He goes, no. I was like, dude, you traitor. You know, you traitor. And he said something to me that's interesting. He goes, she knows she did wrong. You know? And then you expect him to explain it and just pat you on the shoulder and walks away. You know? <laughs> you know? And we, we had to walk through that in our own life, that it's not just, what, what if we, you and I lived that way? Seriously, what if you took that into your job? Jesus, get me out of my perspective. Get me out of my rights. Get me out of my passion and what I want to produce. And humbly implant your perspective in this situ with this situation. Can I, can I see what you look like here? Can I operate out of your wisdom? I welcome your perspective in my life. I welcome your voice into this situation. I want it to, it, 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 it'll save you. It'll save you heartache. It'll save you pain. It'll save your marriage. It'll save your job. It'll save your children. Humbly welcome his word in your life. Jesus, I want to spend the next few moments worshiping you. Pray that you would captivate us in the next moments, in the next hour, with your perspective and your wisdom. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.